0: Matthew chapter 14 is where we're at this morning. And we'll be finishing up this chapter and entering into the next. Um. This morning, as we think of <clears throat> tradition, we think of the deception of tradition. We all have traditions in our life at some point or another. Maybe it's the way we do Christmas or the way we do Thanksgiving or where we go on our vacation or what we do on our vacation. There are certain traditions that we establish in our lives. And some of those traditions can be healthy and they can be helpful and they can be spiritual enlightening and really enable us to live a deeper and fuller life for Christ. And yet there is also... Those traditions that can literally uh, strangle us and cause us um, to not do what God wants us to do because we are holding on to a tradition. We're holding on to something that maybe is not in God's Word and uh, may even be a clear violation of God's word and yet because we've always done it and because it's a tradition in our family to do it uh, we just continue down that road and uh, it's important to understand when it comes to God and our relationship with him he does not expect us to be traditional that's just not in the cards Um, he wants us to be intensely in love with him in a personal way and he's provided that way through Christ uh, our Lord and Savior. But it's it's very important that we understand that sometimes we make these man-made traditions and we're going to look at some of those this morning that we read here in the Gospel of Matthew. But in the book of Isaiah in several places actually but it says so many times, you know what, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want what you have to offer me. And the reason that I don't want it, and it's God speaking, he says it's because your heart's far from me. You're just performing some ritualistic religious duty. And in the original text, in those places where God says, I don't want that kind of sacrifice. He really says, just keep it to yourself. I'm sick of it. And that's what we're going to see here this morning in this text. We've talked about the parable of the sowers. Well, we're going to see this morning, a group of people who definitely have some stony ground that needs to be furrowed. They have some hard ground that will resist the word of God to the point that they find fault and accuse God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember last time when we picked up, or we left off, Jesus was got done healing the 30-some thousand with women and children, 5,000 men plus women and children in Matthew 14. And then we saw where Jesus walked on the water out to the disciples as they were in the middle of the Sea of Galilee trying to cross over to the other side as he has instructed them to do. They were doing what God told them to do even though it was difficult even though they were fearful for their lives they continued to do what God told them to do through Christ and Christ eventually went out and he walked to them on the water and last week we looked at the perfect storm and there's not a person in this room that can't say to some degree to one degree or another we all have issues in our lives we all have burdens we're carrying into this place today we all have something in our life that we would We want God to fix. We want God to address. Sometimes we feel like we're in the midst of a storm in life. And we looked last week at how Christ walked out to his disciples on that storm, above the storm. And they truly were amazed. At first they thought it was a ghost and then they realized who it was because he basically spoke to them and they recognized his voice. And Peter said, If it's really you, I need you to tell me to come out there, which was a pretty bold thing to do. And he was saying, Lord, I know it's you, and I'll be okay. I want to be close to you. And so he hopped out of the boat when Jesus said come, and he walked all the way over to Jesus within arm's reach. We don't know how far it was, but he walked on water. And he got a little disturbed when he saw the wind and the waves and everything. And he says he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. And that's a prayer that God will answer. It says in verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got back into the the boat, the wind ceased. So they walked back to the boat. I don't think Jesus put Peter on his shoulders So Peter was a man of incredible faith, and yet he still had issues. So we all have issues, we all have problems in our life, we all have things that we want the Lord to address. Well, where do we look for that? And we see in verse 33, when Christ worked in that way in their midst, their reaction was, it says that they worshipped him, and they said, truly you are the Son of God. They were blown away by what they just saw. And then at other times, the next day even, when all the crowds left Jesus, you remember, he started talking about they wanted another free meal. And he said, no, the only meal you're going to get is you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they couldn't comprehend that. And it says that the crowds left him. And this is the beginning of Christ being pulled away from all the popularity that he had. This is the beginning stages of, this is really the apex of his ministry. And from here on, logically, when we look at it, it's downhill. It doesn't get any better for Christ. It gets worse. So he's striving to pull away from the crowds and spend more time with his disciples because he knows his time is short. He probably has maybe a year left. And these guys are still of little faith. So he needs to spend time with them and teach them. And we see our text this morning here before us. begins in verse 34, and I'll just read it for us. It says, When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, being Jesus, they sent out into all the surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well well then the scribes and the Pharisees 15 1 says who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders notice that phrase traditions tradition of the elders for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread and he answered to them and he said Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me, it is a gift for God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of God. And when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. Then he and his disciples, then his disciples came and said to him, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, are you still so without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and it's eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murderers, adulterers, fornications, thefts, w- false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Amazing account in Scripture. Well, let's look where we picked up there, verse 34. It says when they had crossed over. That's, they crossed over the Sea of Galilee. Remember, that's where they were headed. They had spent the day before feeding the multitudes and healing and preaching the kingdom. And at night, Jesus had come because they were out in the middle of that sea with a big storm around them. And he came walking on the water. water. And finally, the, the storm ceased. When they got in the boat, they made it to the other shore. And sometime after that, it says they had come into the land of Gennesaret. We don't know what the time period is. It may be the next day. It may be later in the same day. We don't know. Remember, when they came to the other shore early in the morning, Jesus taught and he had that great and profound discourse on the bread of life. John 6. The same crowd that had been on the eastern shore over there came across and they followed him. They wanted, like I said, another free dinner but instead he gave them basically a theology lesson and they all took off. They all left. He didn't feed them physically. He fed them spiritually. They may have hung around till morning. We don't know. It may have been later in the day Anyway, they retreated to this land of Gennesaret. And if you pull out your Bible map, you can see it's not a town. This is not a village. It's not a city. It's an area. It's a general area. It's basically a big, fertile plain. It's about three and a half miles long and probably about two miles wide at its widest point. And very fertile soil. It borders the northwestern coast of the Sea of Galilee. It's close to those cities, Bethsaida and Capernaum. And it's very likely that Jesus went there with his disciples to find some time alone with them. That's what he was searching when he went up on the mountain. And that's what he was looking for when they went away and and then all the crowd came and they had to feed all those people. He was looking for time alone with his disciples. He kept on being interrupted. So they went to this land of Gennesaret, this area that's kind of out of the main kind of, you know, road. It's away from everything. It's just a big fertile plot of land with vegetables and all sorts of things growing there. It says in verse 35, And when the men of that place recognized him, okay, it wasn't like they were out in the wilderness. Like I said, people working in the fields, and you know they were probably doing their crops. Um, Bible commentaries tell us that this was so, such a fertile part of the area that they could get up to four crop yields every year. That's how fertile this place was. So you always had people working in the area, and they probably saw Jesus and these 12 guys, and they thought, hey, is this the guy? Is this the guy that's doing all the healing? And it says when they recognized him, They sent out into all the surrounding region. In other words, hey man, go get the other workers in the other field. This guy has done some incredible stuff. And it says they brought to him, to Christ, all who were sick. I mean, if I had to sum up the mandate of the church in one word, or in a couple words, in a sentence, that's what it is. The reason we're left here on earth, the reason when we get saved, God doesn't just beam beam us up to heaven. I mean, that would be great, wouldn't it? You get saved and then you're just gone. You don't have to deal with any more sin. You don't have to deal with this world. You don't have to deal with all the hurt and the pain and all the obstacles that are in our way. No, you just go right to heaven if you're saved. Just immediately. Just boom. You're just gone. That would be great. But that's not what God chose to do. He left us down here. He left us down here so that other people could look at our lives transformed by Christ and say, wow, what happened? And then we deflect that and go, it wasn't me, trust me. I was so messed up, I couldn't even see straight. But God healed me. God made me right. And he ultimately then gets the glory. But he said, while you're down there in your saved state here on earth, I have a task for you. I want you to go into all the kingdoms, all the nations, and what? Preach the gospel of Christ. Preach the message that has touched your life, that has transformed your life. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't hoard it. Share it. And it's just very interesting that these people, these aren't Christians. These aren't people who are Christ followers. These are just field workers. But it says that they recognized who Christ was, and they recognized what Christ could do for them. And so they not only came to Christ themselves, but they got everybody, it says, in the area. It says they sent people out all among that region, and they brought to him all who were sick. That's why we're here. We're here to go out into a sick and dying and sin-filled world to bring the sick to the Savior. Because I'm going to tell you right up front, I can't do nothing for them. And neither can you. You just can't. What could we do? We can point them to the Savior. We can give them the truth of the word of God. We can pray for them. Maybe we can comfort them. But I'll tell you what, it's, it's a big difference between comforting somebody and seeing somebody transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. I can't perform that in the human heart. Sometimes I wish I could. I wish I had a little pill when, when people come into the office for counseling and they got all these problems. I can say, you know what, take this pill and it will just make you a Christian and all your problems will go away and everything will be great. That would be super if we could do something like that. But we don't have anything like that. We have to rely on the Spirit of God. We have to rely on the truth of the Word of God. We have to rely on God to work in the human heart. But we need to be diligent as a church about going out into the countryside and collecting those who are still sick. And so many times, you know, we forget that task. We just forget it. We forget that we live in a a world that's lost and dying and on their way to hell on a daily basis. And we have the message of hope. We have the the gospel that saved us. We, We can share that with people. And we can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit that he's given within us. It's not like God just saved us and said, okay, you're on your own now. Go figure it out. He gave us the very power that raised Christ out of the dead. From the grave. Brought him back to life. The power of the Spirit resides within the believer. And yet, the enemy so quickly makes us feel so inadequate. Makes us feel so terrified. Probably, if you went around the room and asked to say, what's the one thing that terrifies you as a Christian? Probably more than not, most people would say, sharing my faith. Telling others about Christ. I mean, sometimes I used to do evangelism classes for youth leaders. And I look back on it now and all the mechanics weren't really biblical, but you know, I was just working with what I had. okay. But I remember getting these youth workers in a room and we we're kind of setting up a scenario. You know, Okay, you're going into an arcade and you have a, a youth that you want to reach for Christ. How are you going to dialogue with them? What would you say? What questions would you ask? And then we would act it out. I mean, it sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? But that's what we did. And I remember these people going, I don't know, I can't do that. I'm like, what do you mean? You're in an evangelism class. You're with other Christians. What do you think they're going to do? Curse you out? I mean, for goodness sakes, if you can't do it here with the brethren and with the sisters in Christ that are here, how are you going to go out into the world and do it? Sometimes we're just a little too timid. I mean, I I speak for myself as well. I'm virtually a very shy person when it comes to stuff like that. But you know what? We live in a sick world. I mean, it's not like we got to go look for sick people, right? All you got to do is go into a grocery store. You see sick people all over the place. All you got to do is walk down to Sequoia Station. You'll see a lot of sick people. I mean, you get accosted just walking to the store from your car half the time. And we need to remember that we have what it's going to take to transform these lives. They they recognized who Christ was, and they sent out to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. See, the problem is, I think in a lot of churches today, they don't recognize who Christ is. Our churches are filled with people who go to church, weekend and work out. They don't know who Christ is. And you know what I mean. I mean, they know who Jesus is. They know he's the son of God. They know that he died and he was risen on the third day. They know the gospel. But they don't know the Savior in an intimate way. Christ hasn't done, changed them in any way. They just learned the traditions of growing up in a Christian home. And they just learned what it, you know, the prayers you do. and You go out to eat, you pray. You know, that's a Christian thing to do. Or, you know, things like that. And that's where all their hope is. And all these external things. And they're really very, very sick when you tear off the veneer of the facade of Christianity. Their heart is sick. Desperately evil, wicked, as are all of ours. But theirs is in an unregenerate state. Theirs has yet to be touched by the power of Christ. Christ. Look at what they 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 did. It says here in verse thirty six. It says, "And they begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well." They brought all these people together. The crowd. We don't know what the crowd was. All I know is Jesus has been doing this, healing people in these regions for a couple years now. So, virtually, I believe, everywhere Jesus went, he healed everybody that was to be healed, because that's every account we see, for the most part. But somehow they found some more sick people. (laughs) And they implored him, they begged him. Brought them all together. They were so confident. These people had probably heard story after story after story, testimony after testimony after testimony of what Christ had done in the lives of other people. Remember, I said these people, this big crowd of people here, is not a bunch of Christ followers. The story doesn't say that. I believe these people here were there just like the people a couple of weeks ago, who were there for the free lunch, the free dinner. They were there for the simple reason, uh, we know this guy has something that he can give us, and that's what we want. And they said, all we want to do is just touch the hem of your garment. Maybe they were familiar with the woman that we read about in Matthew 9, Remember? Remember, she grabbed the cloak of Christ as he passed down, passed by, and, and he, she had to, he had to turn around and say, hey, where, who touched me? And his disciples are going, what do you mean? Look at all these people. They're just pressed up. How can I say who touched you, Jesus? Well, power went out of me. Somebody with faith touched me. We remember that story. Maybe they were familiar with that. But for whatever reason, these people, all they felt they needed to do was to just simply touch him. And remember, Christ is trying to get away from the crowds. Maybe that became evident because of where he was geographically. You know, it's kind of like when you go into a restaurant and you see maybe a a talk show personality or a, a, a movie star or something. You know, you see him sitting there eating dinner, and you just want to go over, and you want to, just, you know, just real quick, just sign this. It's for my daughter, or it's for my child, or for, You know, I mean, you, you just, you know, you were drawn to stuff like that. Somebody famous, ooh. Maybe they felt that way. Hey, we don't want to bog this guy down. Okay, I don't think they had healing lines lined up. They said, just, just keep walking, Jesus. We know you're trying to get away with the 12 guys, obviously. You know, just keep walking. We're just going to touch you. And we know that you're powerful enough because we've seen your power firsthand that we will be healed as a result of that. So there, there's kind of some sensitivity on this crowd's part. And you see the compassion of Christ because it says... As many as touched it were made well. This is Jesus, the compassionate healer. This is Christ, the the one who has compassion. And even those who are there just to get what they want. They're not there to follow Christ. They're just there to be healed. Or they're just there for a free meal. Jesus, I don't recall Jesus in the feeding of the the 5,000 men and more with women and children, saying, okay, those of you who are willing to make a commitment, you get over here in this line because I got some food for you. The rest of you, well, you know what? Frankly, you can just go to hell. I don't remember Jesus saying that. I don't remember Jesus implying that. I think everybody got something to eat to the point where they were stuffed. And not all those people were Christ followers. And they said, We just just need to touch the hem of your garment. Incredible faith, in a way. And you see the compassion of Christ, He obviously healed them. That's what it says. It says, All who touched it were made perfectly well. See, this this is a good text. See, the faith healers grab this test and they say, oh, okay, yeah. now I got this little rag here and I I want you to send in $10 and I'll send you this rag, you know, and this rag's going to heal you. What a bunch of garbage. And then they use a text like this to try to support bilking people out of money so they can get their little faith hanky in the mail. You know what's scary? is they make millions and millions, and I'd even say billions off of those scams yearly from gullible Christians who don't know the word of God and are willing to look at that and go, wow, yeah, I need a healing. Maybe I'll send them 20 bucks. See, there were no progressive healings when it comes to Christ. There's no claims that, oh, you know what? Jesus, he he healed me, but, you know, I'm I'm getting better every day. You never read that in the Word of God. Not at all. What you do read is that they were completely healed every time. Completely. Totally made well. Instantly. It wasn't like, you know, make sure you go check with your doctor. See, and this reveals the compassion of Christ. It reveals to me that, you know what, God is a loving God. These people simply wanted to get what they wanted to get. It's a classic, classic example of, of people when they come to Christ. They just come to him for what he, they can get out of Christ. How can you meet my felt needs today, Jesus? Jesus. And after they get what they want, what do they do? They leave. No commitment. And it always seems that way with Christ. Once people receive what they prayed for or what they wanted, then they're gone. As a youth pastor, I used to see this on a yearly basis, you know, you take kids to camp and they make the big crying, weeping commitment and go and throw a stick in the fire and, you know, do all that thing. And then, you know, two weeks later, they're back to the same old shenanigans they were before they went to camp. There was no change in their life. It's a big emotional high. You can go into churches where they have big altar call. Oh, come down and pray this prayer. Come down to the altar. And you got the same people coming down week in and week out. I heard one pastor one time told him, what do you keep on coming down here for? Either you're saved you or you're not. It doesn't make any sense. You keep on calming down every time I give a salvation message. What aren't you getting? So many people come to Christ, even within the church, like he's some divine Santa Claus. If you just fix my problem, if you just help me with this, Jesus, boy, I'll do anything. It's almost like genie, that, that Jesus is some magic genie or something. As soon as he grants our wish, well, we then kick him to the curb. And that's, that's a horrible sin in and of itself when you stop and think about it. We're guilty of being just of ingratitude toward God. That's probably one of the ugliest sins of all. So in spite of their ingratitude, in spite of their self-centeredness, in spite of the fact that they weren't willing to make a commitment to him, in spite of the fact that Jesus was a little busy with his disciples, he was probably tired, he was probably totally worn out, he didn't abandon them. You know what he did? He healed them. It says he healed every one of them. That's the compassion of God. That's the pa- compassion of Christ. That's the Christ that I want to introduce people to. I don't want to go downtown and grab some homeless person and introduce them to some some Jesus that's got a big hammer and is just ready to swap him if he does anything wrong. That's not what my Bible, my Bible speaks of a gracious God. Because if it wasn't for his grace, I'd be burned up. And so would you. You see, Jesus, the compassionate healer. Secondly, look at the second set of verses here in chapter 15. It's kind of all runs together. Starts off in verse 1 there. Then, we don't know how much time passed from healing all these people to when the Pharisees showed up. We don't know. It doesn't say. It's just indefinite. could be a few days. We know that it's somewhere around the time of the Passover, because of John 6, which means This is the third Passover in the ministry of our Lord, which means the fourth one was the one where he was crucified. So this is basically a timeline thing here that we can point to and say, you know what, Christ has about a year left. He has about 365 days left in his life before he gives his life as a ransom for the sins of the world. So you can kind of sense the criticalness of him getting together with his disciples and getting them ready for that day. It says, then the Pharisees and the scribes, or the scribes and the Pharisees, came to Jesus. It says they came from Jerusalem, which was quite a walk, first of all. But we're introduced to the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is not some local group of scribes and Pharisees. This is a group from Jerusalem, like I said. This is kind of a special delegation (laughs) sent out. Because you remember, the scribes and the Pharisees had issues with Jesus in Galilee, remember? They tried to kill him, and they're trying to create all sorts of havoc in his life. Well, that probably got back to Jerusalem, and probably some muckety-muck in the traditional religious realm back there said, you know, we need to go confront him again about something. Think of a good question. So it says they came to Jesus. I mean, they're kind of rude in the way they address him. I mean, they don't go up and say, how are you doing? They don't, they don't say anything. I mean, don't you just love that? They're so self-righteous. They were obviously upset. You can see them walking on the way to where Jesus is, thinking, yeah, you know, this is a great, we're going to, this is the question that we're going to trap him with. Can't wait. And they probably went over this thing over and over and over again to get it just right, to think that finally they got him painted into a corner. Because that's what they always were trying to do. Matthew 12, 14, it says that they wanted to kill him back in Galilee. So these were representatives of this legalistic, self-righteous, external, hypocritical, phony religious establishment. That's what it was. These were not Christ followers. These were not godly men. They were from Satan, and they hated Jesus Christ with a passion. They lie about what they teach, and so they despise the truth that is in Christ. These people, this group of religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees that came to Christ were in darkness. They were not born again, and so they despised the light, because that's what the Bible says. They're enemies of our Lord. And we have to remember, among the nation of Israel, there were those who did, like the disciples, truly follow Christ. But that was a minority. The majority were these kind of people. They hated Christ. You know, when they found out they couldn't get another free meal out of him, it says they tried to force him to be king. And when that didn't work, I'm sure they were a little ticked off at the whole situation. And so Jesus has to approach this group of religious hypocrites with some condemnation. Like I said, they're from Jerusalem, so that shows something right there. They wanted to attack him because he, he made them look bad in front of everybody. Whenever he was around them, he made them look bad. And all of this hatred from the Pharisees and Galilee and all the hatred from the Pharisees and the scribes in Jerusalem is, is working its way into this kind of apex. It's, just, it's coming to a boil. And it will eventually, ultimately, lead to his death. Jerusalem was the seat of the temple. It was the place where the schools of Judaism existed. It was the most scholarly and and those who were just very bright-minded people, high-powered group. They sent out a delegation to discredit Jesus publicly. You think you'd learn if you were a Pharisee or a scribe, you know, maybe try it in private first so you're not embarrassed when it doesn't work because it hasn't worked yet. But see, they wanted to mock him in front of everybody, they wanted to attack him publicly because they wanted him to look bad in front of everybody. And you say, well, why is it? Why is it that this group of people hated him so much? If the religious leaders, why did they hate the Son of God so much? Well, it tells us in the way they approach Christ. Basically, they believed that worship boiled down to this ceremony and external religious garb. External religious practices and ceremony. That's what they thought worship was. And when Christ came along, beginning in chapter 5, he continually taught that no, 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 it's not what you do outward. It's not what's on the outside. It's what's what? In the heart. That's what matters. What's in the heart of a person? So there's this religion of external ceremony going on. And then you could kind of say there's the other side of that is where the Spirit is working on the inside of a person. And those are always on a collision course with each other. I remember growing up in the Catholic Church, doing certain things, not eating meat on Friday and you know, going and getting ashes on my head on Ash Wednesday and, and canceling eating any candy, which just drove me batty, during Lent, you know. And we'd go to midnight mass at Christmas time. And I was an altar boy. And I'd ring the little bell. And take the little elements up to the priest. And I went through the whole thing. What was it? I didn't know Christ. That wouldn't have saved me. What was it? It was religiosity. I was holding on to something that I thought somehow would please God. In my own ignorance. And when Christ... Spoke the word of God, the the word of truth in my heart. And I saw a God that transformed people in my own family. They weren't perfect, but you know what? Something happened to them. And then God showed me my own sin before a holy God that, yeah, Steve, you too are a sinner. You too need my grace. You too need to be forgiven. You may not do things like your brothers did, but you know what? Your heart is wicked and desperately evil, and that's what you're being judged on. I couldn't stand up to that. So I bowed my knee, and I came to Christ, and I realized that he forgave me. See, these people had none of that. Everything, their religion was all external. It was all about what you wore and where you stood and how you prayed. They would not accept the religion of the heart. They didn't want that. But both cannot exist. One has to die. It would have been impossible for me to continue to trust in the sacraments and the little ditties I did in in the Catholic Church. It would have been impossible for me to put my trust in that and then put my trust in Jesus at the same time. People say, well, don't you think there's Christians in the Catholic Church? There may be. But you know what? They shouldn't be there for very long if they're true believers. Because once you understand what the Catholic Church is about, it's not about faith in Christ. It's about idol worship. It's about Mary worship. It's, I mean, you could go on and on and on. I don't want to bash the Catholic Church, but that's the way it is. Many of you have come out of that. You know what I'm talking about. They may be nice people, but that's not going to get them to heaven. Praying a rosary, that doesn't mean anything before a holy God, if your heart is wicked and desperately evil. And whenever somebody says, well, you have to go to our church, or you have to be a member of our church to be saved, well, you got a problem right there. That's almost cultic. So you need to stop, and we need to say, what was their problem? Their problem was that they were all about the external. And Jesus came along and said, no, it's not about that. It's about what's going on in your heart. Look at their accusation here. It says, They came, scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem, came to Jesus. And here's here's their accusation. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? That's their charge. You're going to see here that scribes and Pharisees give Jesus a charge, and then they say, we're going to illustrate what we mean. And so they illustrate it and you look down a little further in the text, Jesus shoots right back. He makes his own charge, and then he illustrates his charge. So it's kind of like you got this big duel, big debate out in the land of Gennesaret with all these people who have just been healed, by the way, standing around. Not a real good venue. I remember one time when I was at First Baptist Church in Fremont, Pastor Edmonds and I, we arranged to have... Uh, Dr. Gish come from the Institute of Creation Research and debate one of the biology uh, doctors from Berkeley. And the venue was our church. And I thought, boy, this guy's a smart guy, but he doesn't know anything about debating. I mean, I'm thinking, why would you allow that? You know, we just said, do you mind if we have a church? Oh, no, that will be fine. I mean, he's like walking into the lion's den. And it was, it was just not a good venue for that. Well, you'd think the Pharisees would be a little smarter about where they're picking their fight with Jesus. Here are these people, they just got healed. Think they're maybe a little biased toward the Son of God? They're not Christ followers. They're just there for what they can get. And we don't know, maybe they weren't all around, but there was a crowd there because that's what their intent was, to embarrass him. So they lay down this charge. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Weird, he uses the word tradition. See, in the Talmud, which is basically all the Jewish law put together, not talking Bible, we're talking their own man-made laws. It says that God gave the oral law to Moses and then told Moses to pass it on to great men of the synagogue. That's what the Talmud says. And these men of the synagogue were to do three things with the law of God. First of all, they were to be deliberate in judgment when it came to God's law. In other words, they were to apply God's law properly. Secondly, they were to raise up disciples in the next generation, in other words, the children, so that they could apply the law as well. So it was supposed to be a generational thing. And then thirdly, and this is what got them into trouble, they were to build a fence around the law. Literally, that's what it says. They were to protect the law of God. They were to be protectors of God's law. Don't let it suffer attack. Build a wall around it. So guess how they decided to protect it? When they looked at the people's hearts, the people's hearts weren't right. We read that Time and time again, they wanted to just sacrifice to God. And God saying, I don't want your sacrifice. I want what? I want your obedience. And since the people's hearts were so wrong and so sinful, and obedience was not coming the way it should be, the religious leaders decided, you know, this isn't working. They're not following the commandments of Moses. So what do we do? Well, I think what we have to do, gentlemen, is come up with some of our own rules and regulations to kind of ham them in a little bit and to kind of force them to keep God's law. That sounds like a good idea, they thought. So they started making up their own oral, traditional rules and regulations based on what they read in God's word, in God's law. Because the people's hearts weren't following God's law, So they had to have kind of a a ruler to measure how much these people were following or they weren't following. And so they came up with a a whole bunch of laws. So they started adding laws. They started adding laws and laws and tons of laws, tons of rules, regulations, all sorts of things. And they became the enforcers of their own regulations. That's why whenever you see a scribe or a Pharisee, it always says, you know, the one, one in the gospel says, well, he's standing on the corner and he's praying. Not like that sinner over there. Not, no, not a Pharisee. Look at him. He's got his robe on and he's decked out in his religiosity. It's all external, purely external. Just doing it to be seen by men. And so down through history, they started building this fence around God's true law. And they started making up their own rules and regulations. And after a while, after they added board after board after board in the fence, it totally obscured the pure word of God. And the people didn't even, couldn't even recognize the word of God anymore, the true law. All they could see is all these regulations, this burden that was on them. From the Pharisees, you have to keep this, you, have, you, know, you can't walk on the Sabbath more than a mile. if you do this or you can't you know if this happens, then you've got to do this. And all tons of rules and regulations. And the ultimate result was that the fence that they built ultimately opposed the law of God. They came up with things that were not in the Bible. That's what tradition does. That's exactly what tradition does. And all the people could see is the Pharisees' rules and regulations. They couldn't even recognize the law of God if it hit them in their face. And that's why he says here, why, they say, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of God? No. The tradition of who? Of the elders. Why aren't your guys following all these rules that we made up? That's his charge. A man by the name of Ezra basically fathered a whole group of people known as scribes. And the job of the scribe was to collect and collate and interpret and, 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 and basically make all this, this, these rules and regulations in nice, neat order. And it kept building up. Rabbi after rabbi, they'd add certain things, all this stuff. And every student would make a comment on it, and they'd add that to the book too. See, and this is a key point where they lost the distinction between the law of God and the tradition of men. All of a sudden, you couldn't see the law of God anymore. Their commentary effectively obscured the basic law of God that we know. And over the years... All their rules and their, their, their books and all their regulations. It just became a big, just big pile of stuff. And it was hard to handle. So in 200 AD, there was a rabbi who pulled everything together. And he committed to writing it down. It's Not just oral anymore. It's, we're going to write all this down. And what's written down already, we're going to organize it. I mean, incredible job. To do Because there was just tons and tons of these rules. Well, they did. They put it all together. And that's what they call the Mishnah in the Jewish faith. That's what it is. It's from the Hebrew word, which means to repeat. But that wasn't good enough. So they not only had all these rules and regulations that they made up, kind of smudged together with the law of God, but it's all these books and everything called the Mishnah, But then they thought, well, how are people going to read this and understand it? (laughs) That's kind of difficult. I mean, it was overwhelming. So they said, you know, maybe we need to come up with a commentary on the Mishnah. (laughs) That's what we'll do. And they call that the Gemara. And it's a series of commentaries on the Mishnah. So there's this massive accumulated tradition of the elders. You have the Mishnah, you have the Gemara, which is a commentary on all the traditions. And it's filled with all kinds of ridiculous stuff. And then, if that's not bad enough, some of the rabbinical schools got together and decided, you know what, we're going to put all this together. In one giant book called, one giant work called the Talmud. Talmud. And that's exactly what they did. And then they added something else called the Midrash after a while, which is basically commentaries on other various books of the Bible. So you had the Midrash, the Gemara, the, 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 the Mishnah. You just had volumes, all of this stuff. It would be like, you know, you want to read the Bible? Well, I'll tell you what. Here's the Bible. And then I start adding books on top. And pretty soon, I mean, you got a whole, this whole stage is full of bucks because I'm telling you, if you want the truth of God, you have to read all this stuff. I mean, it's ridiculous. But that's exactly what happened. It was chaotic. And here's where they held all this stuff. Here's the degree to which they, here's what the Talmud says. Listen to this. The words of the scribes, the people that came up with all these rules and regulations, the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. Wow, is right. This is in the writings. It is a greater crime to transgress the words of the school of Rabbi Hillel than the words of Scripture. My son, attend to the words of the scribes more than the words of the law. That's where they ended up. How did it start? Just a little little off in the beginning, just a little couple degrees off in their understanding of what God wanted them to do. They had this ceremony and these traditions over, and and it was pitted against the truth and righteousness of God's word. And then they, they give an illustration. They say, why do you you transgress this tradition of the elders? And they say, here's what we mean. Well, we notice that your disciples, they don't wash their hands when they eat bread. And you say, well, what's that have to do with... Okay, they're not talking about, you know, we want to wash our hands before we um, eat or, you know, come inside and clean your hands up, get cleaned up for supper. No, they're not talking about that. They believe basically in their religious system that, first of all, the reason you had to ceremonially wash your hands, and it was a very involved thing. They even tell you how it has to be done. Have you ever seen on ER or one of those shows, you know, the guy's in the, the, the operating room and he's got all the things. and he's scrubbing up and he's doing everything and then he walks out and he can't touch anything. That's kind of what they, what they describe. You have to do it this way and the water has to drain this way. If you touch this side or on that side with that finger, then you got to start all over. And it's just crazy. Well, that's what it came to. And the reason they believed that, number one, was because if you touched anything Gentile that day, you're defiled. Automatically. And so you had to detoxify yourself of any Gentile touch. Secondly, the rabbis also taught this, which was really weird. They taught that there was a demon by the name of Shipta. And this demon went around and he dwelt on the hands of people while they slept. This is what they believe. And so if they didn't do their ceremonial washings that eliminated this demon, they would pass him to their food and then into their bodies. I mean, this is some wacky stuff. But this is where it led them. This is what tradition will do to you. And this became so important to them that one rabbi said this, Whosoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his common food with rinsed hands may rest assured that he shall obtain eternal life. <laughs> so they they took eternal life and they brought it down to, you know, if you wash your hands the way we tell you, you'll have eternal life. Scary stuff. That is crazy. They believe that you would have eternal life by going through some ceremonial rinsing of the hands. Well, look at Christ's reply in verse 3. Remember, this is a big confrontation. This is like somebody in the parking lot coming up and getting right in your face without even saying, excuse me, nothing. I mean, big confrontation. They're defending their ceremonial religion. And he says in verse 3, He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Some translations say this, But he answered them and said, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? It's very important that we remember that word also. If you stop and think of what Jesus is saying. They just accused him of transgressing the tradition of the elders. And rather than say, we don't do that, what's he do? He admits it. He says, why do you guys also transgress the commandment of God? He didn't have any reason to keep their stupid traditions because it wasn't binding. There was no point in it. Basically, what Jesus is saying to them I mean, it should say in the English, he answered to them basically, yeah, we do. So what? Big deal, pal. He laid down the charge. See, we're not violating any commandment of God, but you are with your tradition. What he's saying is, you know what? Tradition doesn't matter. What matters is the word of God. That's what matters. He's putting the focus back where it needs to be. Only scripture is binding. That's why so many times when you you go to counselors or you get advice or whatever, people say, well, you know, my opinion is I just want to stop and say, you know what? I don't care what your opinion is. Who cares what your opinion is? Who cares what my opinion is? If you're a Christian, you should be interested in, you know what? What does God's word say about it? What principle does God have for me to apply to my situation? And we just don't do that today. They called them the traditions of the elders, but what he's saying is that their traditions are basically a bunch of malarkey. And then he gives the illustration back to them in verse 4. He says clearly "Therefore, God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, for he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say... He gives the illustration. He pulls it right out of God's law, Exodus twenty twelve. You know what? You're supposed to honor your father and mother. Very clear command. You're supposed to have love and respect and reverence for your parents. And you know what? When they get to the ripe old age and they need help, God's word says you should help them. Not only physically and emotionally, but even financially, if need be so. That's what we're called to do. And he says, if you don't honor your parents, but you revile or you curse them, or you remove the dignity of your mother or father, look at what it says. You should be put to death. That's what their word said. He threw it right back at them. In other words, you need to take care of your parents, or you're going to be facing a capital punishment charge. Capital punishment uh, execution, I should say, not a charge. See, it's very clear. It's very simple. There's nothing, you know, Jesus isn't playing word games here. He's just pulling it right out of the law. And he says, you know that, but look at verse 5. But you say, whoever says to his mother or father, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift of God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. This is what the Pharisees say. This is what the Talmud says. Well, what's he talking about? Quickly, the word of God clearly stated, even in in the Old Testament, that as parents get older, we're to care for our parents. We're to provide for them. That's very clear. They didn't like that. So they had to find a way around it. So the way that they came up with what he's saying there in verse 5, but you say, whoever says to mother... Father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift of God. What they're saying is, you know, mom and dad, I'd really like to help you out, but I'm just such a righteous Pharisee that all this money that I have and I could help you with, I'm giving it to God. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? Is that so bad? Well, first of all, in a way, it was a clear violation of what God told them to do. Secondly, that wasn't really their heart. They wanted it to look like that. But that's not really what they were doing. (coughs) They wanted to look like, oh, you know, we're just so spiritual that, can't help you, sorry, tithing too much at the church you know, just giving all the, all the money away to God. Can't help you, pops, can't help you, mom. It says, whoever says to his father or mother, it is a gift, or Doron, Mark says, uses the word Corbin. What that means is you've taken a certain segment of your financial treasure chest and you said, This is for God alone. Doesn't matter if my parents are sick and dying. I can't help them because, well, this is for God. The Greek translation of this is a little obscure in our text. Corban is a gift. Doron is an offering. And so they were saying, this is for God and I'm giving it to him. So it's really exempt from any other use. As a matter of fact, I couldn't give it to you, pops, if, if I had to. Sorry. And then they would just keep it for themselves. (laughs) It's such a pious and self-righteous act, it's amazing that they would do such a thing. I mean, today we have people that abuse elders and they take advantage of elderly and financially and in other ways. And, you know, I mean, the law doesn't look lightly on that. but it was this tradition they came up with so they didn't have to help their mom and dad. They could keep all the money to themselves. the Talmud said that to be against the words of the scribes was to be more punishable than the words of Scripture. So when the scribes told him this, they just believed it. And so Jesus is saying, you know what, you break the commandments of God. You're not honoring your father and your mother by doing this little shell game with your finances. I mean, it was ridiculous. True religion is bound up in one basic word, obeying the commandments of God from your heart. And so he basically, in verses 7 and 9, he condemns them. He says, you hypocrites. You actors, you're wearing a mask. You're not who you really say you are. These people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me. Oh, they're worshiping me all right, but it's in vain because their hearts aren't right. Think of the people that thousands and thousands of people that go to church across our country every Sunday. And it says they're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I mean, this is truly a, a dynamic lesson for us to understand. Are we drawing close to God with our lips and yet not our hearts? I mean, some men worship ritualistically, ceremonially, legally. I had one person tell me one time, well, I just like to go to the Catholic church because I just like the smell of the candles and I like all the statues and it just I just feel the presence of God. I'm thinking, that's why you're going to church? To smell candles and pray to statues? There's something wrong. Their heart has not been transformed. Their heart is still that stony, rock-solid heart. God said he wants to take that heart out and put in a heart of flesh. He wants to give you a new heart. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never going to enter my kingdom. And they were pretty righteous in their own mind. You couldn't outdo them. But their hearts were dark. Their hearts were full of sin. They were external, superficial regulators playing around with this stupid fence that they built around the word of God trying to make the people comply. That kind of righteousness that Jesus demanded was that of the heart. He said that over and over again. He said, you know what? Pharisees, you say you don't commit murder, but how many times do you get angry at your brother? You say you don't commit adultery, how many times have you lusted after a woman in your own heart? It's not about the external... Beloved, it's about what's going on in your heart. These people were filled with darkness. They were filled with sin. How do you know if you have true faith? Quickly. Just five quick things. They're there listed for you. How do you know you're not in part of one of these religious things? How do you know you're not trusting in just tradition? Well, first of all, you're going to have a love for God and a devotion to his glory. Secondly, you're going to have a transformed life. You're going to see God transform your life. You're not going to enjoy the sins of the world anymore. You're going to live a life of self-denial, not self-indulgence. You're going to be desired to have a separated life from the world. This is from the Word of God. Check out the verses I have listed there. You're going to have a secret devotion to God with Him in times of prayer and spending time in His Word. You're going to have an incredible appetite for the Word of God. Because it's going to come alive to you. You're going to have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're going to have a selfless love for other Christians. You're going to be be able to look at your own life and see measurable spiritual growth. And you're going to see the fruit of the Spirit. And you're going to live a life of genuine humility. See, we have to stop and we have to get serious about what's going on in our own hearts. Are we simply going through the motions? Because if that's true, God help you. Because tradition and ceremony will send you to hell every time. Put your faith, your trust, in a compassionate, loving Savior. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, we do pray that you would work in the hearts and the minds of us here this morning. Lord, this wasn't just a little duel out in the desert of the fertile plain there of of Gennesaret. This was a major spiritual showdown that was happening. You had the forces of darkness and the forces of light coming face to face with one another. And once again, as we're going to see next week, our Lord prevails. He always prevails. When given the opportunity, he always prevails over darkness. He always prevails over sin. He always prevails over sickness. Christ can heal. He can save any human heart, no matter how sick, how reprobate, how dark and evil it may be. And I only know that because he saved mine. Father, we pray this morning that you would turn our hearts to Christ that you would take any religion out of our lives, that you would take any obstacles out of our lives, any traditions that are not honoring to you, strip them away. Let us fall to our faces before a holy God and cry out, Abba, Father, God, save me. He'll answer that prayer. For We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.